Okay, so imagine it's Sunday morning and you've sung your way into a reminder of the presence and where you're at, and then the pastor comes up to give the sermon, and right before he starts, he starts climbing over the pews, and he's coming towards you and finally puts a finger like straight in your face and says, this one's for you, listen really carefully. You can kind of feel a little put on the spot, right? The text that we're going to look at today is kind of a moment where Jesus does exactly this. We've had these moments where he says, truly, truly, I say to you, or very truly, I say to you, right? And we've seen that this is when Jesus is going to drop like his, his deepest truths and the harshest words that we really need to take to heart. But he names somebody when this starts. Today we drop back into our series, all this year, walking through the Gospel of John, and we get to the point where Jesus has now, he's, he's healed the man born blind, and he's got everybody's attention, and it's during a feast in Jerusalem, and the city's population has swelled, and, and the, the population all around the temple has swelled, there's people, there's an audience, something miraculous has happened, and we pick it up in John 10. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid out my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of someone possessed by a demon. Can a demon 
open the eyes of the blind. I remember one time taking a, a, my first preaching class in seminary in homiletics, and I remember the professor telling us at the very beginning that when you get to any biblical text, there really is just one key message inside that text that you want to be able to preach, because every text has one key meaning. I come across a text like this, and I'm thinking, that guy is so far from being right. There are so many things going on inside of this text. Like, we could do an entire year's series of messages just on what's in here, and there's so many different ways. I debated for a long time, what is, if there is one meaning, what is it? Where do you go with this text? We could start at the very beginning. There's this rising polemic between Jesus and the assumed leaders of Israel, and they're being forced to make a choice as the rising action of the story is climbing, and we've got to figure out who really is the one who's going to lead Israel. And people, it says even at the end of the text, they were divided. And Jesus is bringing them to this decision and division point where they have to make a call. Right before this, we find out in the last verse of chapter 9, after the healing, Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So basically, he heals a blind man, it's the Pharisees who can't see. Now he's talking about his sheep who will know his voice, and by the time we get to verse 6, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. And the irony here is not, not only are they blind, but they're also deaf. They're supposed to know the word of God better than anybody else, but when he stands in front of them speaking, they can't recognize his voice. Why is that? You could take this text a different direction and be like, you know, on, technically speaking, in a homiletics class, this would never be better than a B-plus sermon because Jesus mixes his metaphors. Did you notice that? He's the gate, he's the good shepherd, he's the gate, he's the good shepherd. You're like, Jesus, which one is it? I would fail on an English paper like this. What do you do? And they're rolling over each other, but this is common in the way that you would teach in parables in the first century, that it would be open to a multitude of different meanings. It would roll in elements of allegory, but a parable has the opportunity to leave its hearers in a different place. That if you are like intentionally obtuse in your hearing of it from the person who's speaking to you, you leave blind, you leave deaf, but if you are one eager to hear what has to, the message inside of it, you leave with a fuller sense of Life and the division is growing. You could take this passage and write an entire book on leadership. And I would if there weren't already 9,000 already published on this. So what he's talking about is being, helping people understand what is it that is real leadership. See, the leaders of Israel are so intent not listening to who the gate actually is that allows the opening. They're busy pounding in the fence posts, defining what the pen is supposed to be. Now, the uber-religious always do this. It's been a temptation for those in leadership to define the parameters and the perimeters on which we can find and move inside of our faith. And it always follows a process on this is how you have to behave in order that you can believe, in order that you can belong. Religion will always do that. And I'm not talking about discipline. Discipline is something that's to train your heart to follow in. But it's simply behavior modification is just to basically teach you how to be a hypocrite, how to have a disconnect between the things that you do and where your heart actually is. And if we simply focus on that, like if you were to go into a class and your main primary objective was, I'm not going to learn the material, I just want to learn this faculty member and what it is that they want on the test because I just want to get the grade, you could get the grade and fail the content of the class that you would not have to use later on in life. And here again, the Pharisees find themselves in that same place. 
They want to just define all the rules. They want to pound these fence posts in, and they want to decide who gets in and who gets out. But Jesus' model is so much different, where Jesus has this invitation of being the gate, the the entry point, the invitation, the arms of the Father, the shepherd, who his sheep know his voice, and he calls them, and they follow him, and he wants to take them to pasture, and he wants to lead them into beautiful places and incredible things and transformation. And so Jesus' movement starts with belonging. And if you find belonging in, the, in him, and people often do in the text before they even believe in him, and then their behavior begins to change and move out of that. That is a very different progression and movement, and I want to ask you in which way and in which order is your Christianity, your following of Jesus being built? These are two very different models of Jesus. You see, I have this deep belief that you can conform someone's behavior without transforming their heart. But genuine transformation will always come in direct relationship to the proximity you find yourself to Jesus. Jesus brings about true transformation. Jesus brings about what only we all long for. And it's our proximity to him that allows that to happen. Not our figuring out the social cues or walking through the behaviors alone. There's supposed to be an expression of our faith. You could take this passage, read it a fourth way, and talk about all the things, what it means to hear the voice of Jesus in this. The voice that speaks. He talks about this at multiple points within the text. The sheep listen to his voice. Verse 3, verse 4. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Even when this text is done, going into the next part, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I'm asking myself as I'm reading this, do I know the voice of Jesus? In my intimate time alone with him, am I not just following through devotional practices or ticking boxes and some sort of Christianity checklist but do I know his voice? I talked with a couple of you this week who told me, I don't know if I've ever heard Jesus' voice. You need to learn this voice. And you need to know that it's calling your name. This idea of voice comes back again later on in the text. This is on the other side of the resurrection, now John chapter 20. And listen for it when it comes, okay? Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? But thinking it was the gardener, she said, sir... If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. She doesn't see it when she sees him. And she doesn't see it when she still thinks he's the gardener. But it's the moment that he calls out her name. He knew her. She had heard that name called in his presence before. Mary, who had had seven demons cast out of her, becomes the apostle to the apostles in this moment where Jesus calls her name. 
Mary, Sam, Lydia, Lisa, Danica, Tom, Larry. Can you hear his voice? The shepherd who calls your name. You could take this passage and go another way because it moves towards this evangelistic thrust that comes later on in this, pat- this one verse that so many people have no idea what to do with in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this pen and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Wait, what? What is going on in verse 16? This whole text has been built up to be like Jesus is the gate Jesus is the way. Jesus is the only shepherd. He's the good shepherd. There's like an exclusivity built into this text. And now there's this generosity that comes hot on its heels. Jesus is like the exclusive generosity. He's both at the same time. He's the gate. He's the way. He's the only way to be able to find all this. But Jesus has a way of calling and inviting in a way that is so far beyond but the disciples were ready to hear at that time. Most scholars think this is about Jesus sort of prepping their hearts and their minds for their understanding later on that even the Gentiles, like the arms of God, are going to get opened up even wider. And he's like, he's, he's slow-stepping them there. Finally, if I had to pick one place where I think this whole text kind of apexes, it would be in verse 9 and 10. Because this isn't just about leadership. It's not just about the polemic of choice. And it's not only a lesson on evangelism, but it's about salvation itself. I am the gate. And whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. How many people here have like taken care of sheep before? Okay, a couple of you, all right. You would probably know more about this than me. I had to do research on this to figure this out. I was trying to figure out what was happening in this passage. Turns out that sheep actually do this, that a sheep will not follow somebody, and they're very, very loyal to their shepherd, that they know his voice, that they recognize him, then the same thing back. It was common practice already in the first century, according to many of the commentators I read, that a shepherd would name his sheep. They spent so much time together. Um, that he would name them, and then when they would all go into the pen, and the ancient Eastern practice would be, he would put them all in a pen, and then at night, when there was the, they were the most vulnerable, and they would need to go to sleep, he would literally become the gate, and he would lie down his body in their place, so nothing's going in, and nothing's coming out if it's not going through him. And Jesus is teaching us in this passage, there's nothing that's going to come your way in life that isn't coming through my nail-scarred hands. Nobody is going to get to you. The God of angel armies is on your side. And I stand in this place, and I'm going to be the one who's going to conquer death, and I'm going to stand here, and I will be. I will be the gateway for everything that will come in and out of your life, and I'm willing to do that for you. And then we get the greatest lesson in leadership ever offered. He lays down his life. He doesn't put other people out in front of him as pawns. He doesn't... Um, use a worldly form of leadership where you would have everybody else sort of at your disposal, but their great job is to protect you. No, he lays down his life for them. And this exclusive generosity also becomes very costly. He becomes the gate. 
And the one who leads them out becomes the one who protects them. And they know him, and they know his voice, and they will only follow him. The reason why we incorporate disciplines of worship and prayer and devotional practice and doing things like going to chapel when we're in college and finding ourselves in close proximity with other believers is that we learn to hear his voice for all the most dangerous moments in life when you won't be close to it. When you're all alone and you're tempted and you're hurt, but you know his voice, and when it speaks, it cuts through the darkness. Because the darkness only has one objective in life, and it's so clearly laid out in this passage. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I think so often we want to believe that life's a little more flat than that. But Jesus is so clear in this text. And I'll be honest with you, this is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. One of the reasons I was jacked to get to this passage today for this exact reason. The thief comes only. So he has, he has one objective, but yet there's three kind of inside of it. To steal. All the evil one wants to do, the playbook written in the pits of hell on your life is to take away from you. To take away your life. To take away fullness. To take away truth. To take away confidence. To take away a closeness with Jesus. To take away the gifts of the Spirit. To take away, it has an objective, and it is to suck the life out of you. It is to offer you lies that will lead you somewhere else that will not give you what only Jesus can give. He wants to steal. There's a progression of language here too. Is not only does he want to take away from you, but he wants to kill you. He wants to end your life. Every time I've ever come into contact with someone who has been um, demonically afflicted or even demon-possessed in different continents, where I've got to see this in different places in the world, every time that's the case, that person is involved in some form of self-harm. It is the devil's objective to take life from you and then to take life itself. The progression continues to steal, to kill, to destroy. I want to, he wants to obliterate in his playbook any memory or ramification or relevance of your life. To steal, to kill, to destroy. In our moments of temptation, we don't want to allow ourselves to think that, it's, that this is the kind of stuff that's at stake. But this is the evil one's playbook on you. And it's uniquely laid out for every one of us to steal, to kill, and destroy. And so the antithesis, the opposite of all of that comes in Jesus, I, what I guess is his mission statement. Because he kind of just lays it out like, this is why I'm here. I have come, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever gone through the exercise of writing a mission statement for your life. Jesus kind of did here, right? I have come. Okay, Jesus, you have my attention. That they may have life. It is the mission of Jesus' life to be other-directed. It is the evil one's primary objective to take from you, and it's Jesus' primary objective to give to you. I think for many of us who grew up in the church, there's a moment of second kind of conversion that we experience. And it's the moment you realize that Jesus is actually for you. I think that's why this text was so pivotal for me in life. I remember coming across this at a stage where I realized I'm not trying to be a Christian because I have to please mom and dad because other people want me to do this because that's what good people do or that's what you do when you grow up. It wasn't any of those reasons. It kind of hit me that this is what it's all about. I have come that they may have life. Jesus came to give me life. He is for me. He is so for me. He's more for me than I am for me. Jesus is more for me than my selfishness. 
Jesus is more for me than every lie of pleasure and selfish indulgence the devil has ever told to me. Jesus is so for you, you don't even have the imagination to comprehend how for you he really is. And I realize that this is why we follow him. This is why we accept him not just as a savior to get the benefits of going to heaven when we die, but when we want to see eternal life broken and now, we allow him to have the lordship of our lives because he is the good shepherd and he is the gate and there's no other way to find the things that everything that was created inside of me would long for except if I can find it in him. And I pursued them in so many other places, but they were all dead ends. And I found the end of the lies of the evil one that came to steal and kill and destroy in my life. But Jesus came that I would have life and have it to the full. He's not done yet. I don't want to just give you life. I want it to be overflowing. And I had to ask myself this question this week. Why? Why is it Jesus' objective in life to see your life, have life, and then have it in abundance? Why? I've wrestling with that for the last little while. We had a snow day, so I actually had this text sitting in my head now for the last three weeks. This is my best shot at answering that question. I think it's because if we were to realize that we're already full, if you already have everything you need, if you are already perfectly loved, we would act a little bit different. If you walked out of here today and knew that you were so perfectly loved that you had nothing left to prove, no grade would define you on the test that you're about to take, no position on a team would define your status, no person who says yes or no to you for the next date you ask them on has anything to say about your self-worth. Like if you knew your worth, your value, your identity was not up for grabs because your cup was full, you would be a very different person in this world. Fourteen years ago, my counselor, when I sat down, had a little bit of a crisis going on in my life, told me, Aaron, if this was Jesus' um, life statement and his mission statement, I've come that they would have life and have it to the full, then your mission statement in life is, I need to learn how to live like I'm already loved. Can we live like we're already loved? That's the invitation. To live in abundance. I mean, just go there in your mind for a minute, okay? Okay. Imagine if you walked out of here today and you had nothing to prove to anybody. Because you weren't lacking. See, only the thief wants to steal from you and wants to define you by what you lack and by what you are not and the wealth that you don't have and the job that you don't yet have and the security of a future that you don't yet have. He wants you to live in that space. It is the mission of Jesus' life to teach you that you already have everything you stand in need of. So you got to walk with a little swagger. you got to be a little more brave in this world. Not just because of the gate and the good shepherd and the angel armies, but because of the identity that's been yours and the life that was laid down so your cup would already in this moment be full. And if you've ever been told that it isn't, then that is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. I'm going to ask the band to come on back up, and I wanted to sing one more song um, together. And I want to ask you guys, too, if you're upstairs, if you'll take the lights down a little bit for us. And if you need to find a little bit of space so you can sing a little bit louder because you're, like, self-conscious of people around you, I purposely picked a familiar one to do this for a lot of you so you can close your eyes and sing out. Don't sing for the band. Don't sing for the people around you. Sing for the gate. Sing for the gatekeeper. Sing for the good shepherd. Sing for the one who fills your cup to overflowing.
and sing your adoration back to him.